Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest growing white collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock, because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. Now we're up to three media figures who are talking about the very real possibility that we are looking at, not the possibility or the probability or the future event of the end of a democratic republic, but literally it's here. It's here right now. The question is whether we can pull back from it. I mentioned Bill Maher yesterday. I've been talking about this for, geez, three years with increasing alarm. And uh, last night, Rachel Maddow went there. This is amazing stuff. So I wanted to revisit this extraordinary story. I've shared this with you before because I've been on this hobby horse for a long, long time. Those of you who, you know, have read Prophet's Way or, you know, my kind of my autobiography or who have listen to the show for years and years, know that back in 1978, I met a, a guy in Germany, a German fellow, who had started an international charity. In fact, he started it after World War II for orphans and homeless people in Germany as the country was being ravaged by cholera epidemics in the wave of World War II. It was just shattered. He had been a prisoner of war. He was a member of Hitler's army. And he had been parachuted into Iran and was arrested there early on in the war. And he says, thank God I never had to shoot at anybody. I never had to kill anybody. He was kept in prison until after the war was over. But 
he had been a Nazi. He had been a part of Hitler's army. He got swept up in this whole thing. He died in his 90s back a little more than a decade ago, as I recall. And, but he was my mentor in many ways. His name was Gottfried Mueller. And I spent an enormous amount of time with him. Louise and I moved to Germany for a year to hang out with him and do the work that he was doing. He, we set up programs all over the world for, you know, from hospitals to schools to communities for abused kids to all kinds of stuff. And through this work, by the way, he had a guy who worked for him, Horst von Heyer, who has also passed away now, who was a member of the Hitler Youth. And we used to, you know, we'd sit and drink a bottle of wine and have these long talks into the evening about how did Hitler do this? I mean, von Heyer was at the Nuremberg rally. You know, he was one of those people that you see in Lenny Reifenstahl's movie, Power of the Will. Triumph of the Will. Triumph of the Will. Thank you, Nate. And so I can tell you my own stories from this, and I have over the years, and, and in fact I wrote, there's a chapter in Prophet's Way called Where is a Hitler for Peace, in which I was talking with Herr Mueller, and he said, you know, this guy, Adolf Hitler, went from having three supporters and no money to conquering all of Europe in seven years. And then he kind of waved dismissively and he said, but he's, he was an evil man and he's gone and that's over. And then he turned to me and he said, where is the Hitler for peace? Where is the person who is going to try to bring the world together or who is going to, you know, quote, conquer the world? You know, being a German, he loved military metaphors. Where is the person who's going to conquer the world for peace? Which was his thing. He was a devoted pacifist. He became a vegetarian in the prisoner war camp in the late 1930s in Iran thinking that, that he would die of malnutrition. He was a vegetarian his whole entire life. It was one of the things that attracted me to their program. So during that time, I encountered this book that was written by a fellow named Milton Mayer. Milton Mayer, he was a reporter for, as I recall, the Chicago Sun, one of the big Chicago newspapers. And after the war, and he was Jewish too, he you know, had a perspective on this. I mean, all Americans had a perspective on it, but after the Holocaust. And after the war, he went to his editor and he said, you know, I'd like to go to Germany. Spend a year there, get to know average Germans. Average Germans who didn't become Nazis, who didn't get drafted as Herr Mueller had, or join, you know, the Hitler Youth as von Heyer had, who just got, you know, the world just changed around them and write a book about it. And he did. And he spent that time in Germany. I, I'm not sure it was a whole entire year, but he, there were 10 average Germans. There was a baker, there was a bricklayer, there was a professor. And he stayed with these guys. He got to know them really, really well. And he wrote their stories. In this book, they thought they were free. And I want to just share some small pieces from this book with you because I think it's instructive. Milton Mayer has passed on now long ago. But his book is still in print. He says, now I see a little better how Nazism overcame Germany. Not by attack from without or by subversion from within, but with a whoop and a holler. It was what Germans wanted, or under pressure of combined reality and illusions, came to want. They wanted it, they got it, they liked it. I came home a little bit afraid for my country, afraid of what we might want and get and like under combined pressure of reality and illusion. 
I felt and feel that it was not German man that I met, but man. He happened to be in German under certain conditions. He might be here under certain conditions. He might under certain conditions be me. If I and my countrymen ever succumbed to that concatenation of conditions, no constitution, no laws, no police, and certainly no army would be able to protect us from harm. And then he tells the story. This is from his conversation with the college professor, who again, never joined the Nazis. He said, what happened here was the gradual habituation of the people, little by little, to being governed by surprise, to receiving decisions deliberated in secret, to believing that the situation was so complicated that the government had to act on information that people couldn't understand, or so dangerous that even if the people could understand it, it couldn't be released because of national security. This separation of government from people, this widening of the gap, took place so gradually and so insensibly, each step disguised, perhaps not even intentionally, as a temporary emergency measure or associated with true patriotic allegiance or with real social purposes. And all the crises and reforms, and many were real reforms, so occupied the people that they did not see the slow motion underneath of the whole process of government growing remoter and remoter. And then he gets to the point of all this, which is that everything still looks the same. He said, to live in this process is absolutely not to be able to notice it. Please, try to believe me. Unless one has a much greater degree of political awareness, acuity, than most of us ever had occasion to develop. Each step was so small, so inconsequential, so well explained, or on occasion regretted, that unless one were detached from the whole process from the beginning, unless one understood what the whole thing was in principle, what all these little measures that no patriotic German could resent must someday lead to, one no more saw it developing from day to day than a farmer in his field sees the corn growing. And then one day, it is over his head. He says, one day too late, your principles if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy. And some minor incident, in my case, it was my little boy, hardly more than a baby, saying, Jew, swine, collapses it all at once. And you see that everything, everything has changed and completely changed under your nose. The world you live in, your nation, your people, is not the world you thought you were in at all. The forms are all still there all untouched, all reassuring. The houses, the shops, the jobs, the mealtimes, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, is changed. And now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Now you live in a system which rules without responsibility, even to God. He goes on to say, Pastor Niemöller spoke for the thousands and thousands of men like me when he spoke too modestly of himself 
and said that, you know, when the Nazis attacked the communists, he was a little uneasy, but after all, he was not a communist, and so he did nothing, and then they attacked the socialists, and he was a little uneasier, but still he wasn't a socialist, and he did nothing, and then the schools, the press, the Jews, and so on, and he was always uneasier, but still he did nothing, and then they attacked the church, and he was a churchman, and he did something, but then it was too late. You see, one doesn't see exactly where or how to move. And this is the question that Rachel Maddow kept asking last night, and she never got an answer or gave an answer to the best of my knowledge, which is, what do we do? Back to the professor, the German professor in 1950. Believe me, this is true. Each act, each occasion is worse than the last, but only a little worse. You wait for the next and the next. You wait for the one great shocking occasion, thinking that all the others, when such a shock comes, will join with you in resisting somehow. You don't want to act or even to talk alone. You don't want to go out of your way to make trouble. Why not? Well, you're not in the habit of doing it. And it's not just fear. Fear of standing alone that restrains you. It is genuine uncertainty. And we'll come back to this on the other side of this break. But think about this. All these people who resigned from the Justice Department yesterday and maybe resigning today, how many people are in positions in our government who can't afford to resign? who would lose their home if they resigned. If they took a principal stand, their lives would be destroyed. Their kids would, would end up homeless or unable to go to college. I mean, you know, Reaganomics has created a system now where your kids can't reliably go to college without your help. What do they do? So the point that I want to make here and we're going to go back to Milton Mayer's They Thought They Were Free, is that everything still looks the same, right? When Trump messes with our criminal justice system, it still looks like we have a criminal justice system. When our churches start endorsing white supremacist right-wing bigotry, it still looks like we have churches. When our legislators still show up for legislative sessions and debate things, it looks like we still have a functioning democracy. But we don't. So back to this uh, college professor that Milton Mayer was talking about back in the late 1940s. He talks about uncertainty as a very important factor. He says, you're not used to making trouble. He says, uncertainty is a very important factor. And instead of decreasing as time goes on, uncertainty grows. Outside, in the streets, in the general community, everyone seems happy. One hears no protest and certainly sees none. You know, in France or Italy, there's slogans against the government painted on walls and fences. In Germany, though, outside the great cities, there's not even this. In the university community, my own community, you speak privately to your colleagues, some of whom certainly feel as you do, but what do they say? They say, it's not so bad. You're seeing things. You're being an alarmist. And you are an alarmist. You are saying that you know that this must lead to that, but you can't prove it. These are the beginnings, yes, but how do you know for sure when you don't know the end? And how do you know or even surmise the end? On the one hand, your enemies, the law, the regime, the party, they intimidate you. On the other, your colleagues poo-poo you as pessimistic or even neurotic. But that one great shocking occasion. I talked about this yesterday. But that one great shocking occasion, the college professor told Milton Mayer, and he wrote it, they thought they were free. 
when tens or hundreds of thousands will join you, never comes. That's the difficulty. If the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the first and the smallest, thousands, yes, millions would have been sufficiently shocked. Think kids in cages, by the way, as I'm reading this. Thousands would have been shocked. He said, if the last and worst act of the regime had come immediately after the first, if, let us say, the gassing of the Jews in 43 had come immediately after the Germany first stickers in the windows of non-Jewish shops in 33, but of course, this isn't the way it happens. Believe that. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. So how do you think we stop this? So not only did Hitler go after lefties, he went after gypsies, and he went after gay people. You know, Jews wore yellow stars, gay people wore pink stars. In fact, they were early on targeted to be put into the so-called work camps and then later into the death camps. And so yesterday we get the spectacle of Rush Limbaugh referring to Pete Buttigieg as booty geig. And he says, a gay guy, 37 years old, loves kissing his husband on debate stages. Can you see Trump having fun with that? Meanwhile, in Iowa, Republicans in the Iowa House of Representatives are advancing a piece of legislation that would require teachers to notify parents if they plan to mention Pete Buttigieg in the classroom. Pastor Brad Cranston, one of these you know, right-wing bigots who pretends to be a Christian, says, parents have the right to know exactly what the public school, which they are paying for with their tax dollars, is teaching their kids. Right. So anyway, as I said, what can we do? I have a few ideas, a few suggestions. Let me just lay them out very quickly for you. Number one, you will recall we report on this program that the Republican National Committee during the Trump impeachment paid to have a telemarketing firm have 11,000 phone calls. These were actual people, telemarketers, who normally are calling up and saying, hey, you know, how'd you like to, to buy a new car or whatever? 11,000 times they called Republican senators during the impeachment to say, I support President Trump, stand firm, or words to that effect. So the Republican senators thought there was a groundswell of support for Trump. Well, I would suggest that whether you live in a state where you've got two Democratic senators or a state where you've got two Republican senators or a state where you've got one of each, you need to be calling 202-225-3121 respectfully and briefly letting each of your senators and your member of the House of Representatives know this cannot stand. You guys have to stop Trump. You have to hold him accountable. And you have to do it now, and you have to do it loudly. This is no time for language like, well, I think this blows up the norms of governments. No, you say, this is fascism. We're going down the road to Nazism here. This is how democracies are destroyed. And I pray that our democratic leaders will start speaking the truth about this stuff. Anyhow, Mark in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey, 
Tom, I don't know how you're going to take my call, but I'm an independent black guy. And about this Pete Buttigieg, I'm not, I'm not against gay marriage or, you know, any of that. It's just as far as my kid, I think it's too much for my kid to see a man kissing another man as president. When a Mark, man Mark and Gaeta, a woman being gay is not contagious, <laughs> and 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 you need to get past your fear, and I'm assuming in your case it's fear and not hate, but you need to get past it. This is obviously something that Pete Buttigieg and every gay person in America has dealt with their whole entire lives, and in some cases it's just ignorance or a lack of you know knowing anybody who's gay, so you don't realize you know it's it's easy to otherize people that you don't know, but. As I said, one of the reasons that Hitler went after gay people early on was that it was low-hanging fruit. And of course, back then it was illegal to be gay in Germany. Yeah, hell, back then it was illegal to be gay in the United States. We've come a long way. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Defying Hitler by Sebastian Hafner, a memoir. This is from chapter 17, about a little more than a third of the way into the book. At first, the revolution only gave the impression of being an historical event like any other, a matter for the press that might just possibly have some effect on the public mood. The Nazis celebrate January 30th as their day of revolution. They are wrong. There was no revolution on January 30th, 1933, just a change of government. Hitler became chancellor, by no means the Fuhrer of the Nazi regime, the cabinet contained only two Nazis apart from him. He swore an oath of allegiance to the Weimar Constitution. The general opinion was that it was not the Nazis who had won, but the bourgeois parties of the right who had captured, in quotes, the Nazis and held all the key positions in the government. In constitutional terms, events had taken a much more conventional, unrevolutionary course than most of what had happened during the previous six months. Outwardly, also, the day had no revolutionary aspects, unless one considers a Nazi torchlight procession through Wilhelmstrasse or a minor gunfight in the suburbs that night as signs of a revolution. For most of us outsiders, the experience of January 30, 1933, was that of reading the papers and the emotions we felt while we were doing so. The morning headline was, Hitler called to president. That produced a certain nervous, impotent irritation. Hitler had been called to the president in August and November. He had been offered the vice chancellorship and then the chancellorship. Both times he had set impossible conditions, and both times there had been solemn declarations, never again. Each time, never again, had lasted exactly three months. Hitler's opponents in Germany at that time suffered from a compulsive urge to offer him everything he wanted, indefatigably, and at an even cheaper price, indeed to press it upon him. It's the same now with his opponents outside Germany. Again and again, this appeasement was formally renounced, and again and again, it gaily reappeared at the crucial moment. Just so today. Then, as now, one's only hope was Hitler's own unreasonableness. Would it not sooner or later exhaust the patience of his opponents? Then, as now, it became apparent that their patience knew no bounds. At midday, the headline said, Hitler makes impossible demands. We nodded, half reassured. It was only too credible. It would have gone against his nature to ask for less than too much. Perhaps the cup had once more passed from us. Hitler, the last defense against Hitler. At about five o'clock, the evening papers arrived. Cabinet of National Unity informed Hitler Reichschancellor. I don't know what the general reaction was. 
for about a minute, mine was completely correct. Icy horror. Certainly this had been a possibility for a long time. You had to reckon with it. Nevertheless, it was so bizarre, so incredible to read it now in black and white. Hitler, Reich's Chancellor. For a moment, I physically sensed the man's odor of blood and filth, the nauseating approach of a man-eating animal, its foul, sharp claws in my face. Then I shook the sensation off, tried to smile, started to consider, and found many reasons for reassurance. That evening, I discussed the prospects of the new government with my father. We agreed it had a good chance of doing a lot of damage, but not much chance of surviving very long. A deeply reactionary government with Hitler as its mouthpiece. Apart from this, it did not really differ much from the two governments that had succeeded Brunings. Even with the Nazis, it would not have a majority in the Reichstag. Of course, that could always be dissolved, but the government had a clear majority of the population against it, in particular the working class, which would probably go communist now that the Social Democrats had completely discredited themselves. One could prohibit the communists, but that would only make them more dangerous. In the meantime, the government would be likely to implement reactionary social and cultural measures with some anti-Semitic additions to please Hitler. That would not attract any of its opponents to its side. Foreign policy would probably be a matter of banging the table. There might be an attempt to rearm. That would automatically add the outside world to the 60% of the home population who were against the Hitler government. Besides, who were the people who had suddenly started voting Nazi in the last three years? misguided ignoramuses for the most part, victims of propaganda, a fluctuating mass that would fall apart at the first disappointment. No, all things considered, this government was not a cause for alarm. The only question was what would come after it. It was possible that they would drive the country to civil war. The communists were capable of going on the attack before a prohibition against them came into force. The next day this turned out to be the general opinion of the intelligent press. It is curious how plausible an argument it is, even today, when we know what came next. How could things turn out so completely different? Perhaps it was just because we were all so certain that they could not do so, and relied on that with far too much confidence. So we neglected to consider that it might, if worse came to worse, be necessary to prevent the disaster from happening. Through the whole of February 1933, everything that happened remained a matter for the press. In other words, it took place in an arena that would lose all reality for 99% of the population from the moment there were no newspapers. Admittedly, enough occurred in that arena. The Reichstag was dissolved, then in a flagrant breach of the Constitution, Hindenburg also dissolved the Prussian regional parliament. There were fast and furious changes of personnel in the civil service, the book defying Hitler. Rich in Calumet, Michigan. Hey, Rich, what's up? The only way to stop Trump is basically to do what they did with Hitler. They either got to corner him to the point where he does himself in, or we have to actually take him out. No, we don't. Yeah, Rich, that's, that's crazy talk. No, no offense. But uh, we don't. We have to politically defeat him, period. And we, need to, and we need to develop a coalition of people across the United States who are speaking out and speaking out loudly. We need to be contacting the media and raising hell. We need to be sharing with everybody we know our concern about this. We need to be speaking out clearly and unambiguously. We need to defeat the Republican senators who are complicit 
in this. We need to do something about, look at this thing with Facebook. This is from today's Financial Times. The headline, Facebook accuses telecom group of disinformation tactics. Facebook has alleged that one of Southeast Asia's largest telecom providers used tactics of trolls to discredit rivals. So Facebook is taking down companies that have trolls lying about their competitors, but they won't take down Donald Trump, who's lying about the Democratic Party. I mean, you know, these are the things that we need to be doing something about. Francis in Palm Springs, California. Hey, Francis, what's up? Just a general observation about the Republican Party. They're too confident in the election of being reelected. They're not worried about being primaried because if they were worried about being primaried, you would see a different tone. Their tone is of confidence. And no, I disagree, Francis. Worried. What you are saying is absolutely true of Donald Trump. I believe, though, that the, the majority of the Republican senators who are acting like timid little church mice around Donald Trump, and, and you know, when, when he bends over, they say, okay, I'm, I'm puckered up, I'm ready to go here. Those guys are afraid of a primary challenge from a Tea Party candidate or you know, a, another candidate supported by right-wing billionaires like the Kochs, like the Tea Party was. That's what they're afraid of. And I'm guessing that as we go through the primary season for the Republican Party and we start getting into May and June and July, you're going to start seeing, I am hoping, I am praying that you will start seeing some Republicans grow a spine once they know that they've won their primary. But I respectfully disagree with you, Francis. I think that is the largest part of their fear. I remember Don Jr. back at the correspondence dinner before Trump was elected. He said something that no one has went back to look at yet. He said, our dinner will be better when we are here. And he said it with such confidence. And the confidence to me comes from the cheating that they know is going to go on. Yeah. The cheating yeah. that is going to go on. And it's happening already. It is happening already. It is going on right now. Facebook is complicit in it. Facebook is helping with it. This is something that we've all got to just acknowledge, right? Billionaire Zuckerberg is helping billionaire Trump while billionaire Koch is funding all these organizations that are putting billionaire-friendly Republicans into state houses, state legislatures, state governorships, and the United States Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives. We are full-on oligarchy right now. Question is, can we pull ourselves back from it? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And if so, what's it going to take? And frankly, I think at the very least, it's going to take you. It's going to take all of us. Steve in Phoenix. Hey, Steve, what's up? Not enough Americans are taking this situation seriously enough. Part of the thing is, you can just look. You can see our sporting events are still taking place. Shopping malls are open. As they are in Erdogan's Turkey and Putin's Russia. Yes, yes. As they were in Hitler's Germany. You betcha. It's going on. And, you know, I'll have to agree, you brought this up. Well, one thing we can hopefully do is maybe we can get in Roe and Mark's ear, and maybe they can put a bug in Nancy's ear to start talking a little bit more about this, too. Oh, we don't, we don't need them to tell you. I mean, she's getting all kinds of pressure to, to go harder. And, and frankly, she has said things out loud that, that I was saying about people. I mean, my, my concern about this, when I first started reading They Thought They Were Free, Milton Mayer's book on the air, it was when the Patriot Act was passed. And I said, when you give a president this kind of power, you are setting yourself up for a disaster down the road. 
And you could argue that Bush and Cheney abused that kind of power. In fact, you could argue that President Obama abused that kind of power to some extent. But Donald Trump, this is an existential threat. This is, this is the end of democracy kind of threat. Anyhow, back without to you. A doubt, without a doubt. Um, and I also agree that this really began in 71 with the Powell Memo. Yes. Two Supreme Court decisions, the Citizens United one, yeah. and then with Trump's election. Where we are right at this present time, I feel right at the impeachment trial, we were just outside the doorstep. We were still in democracy. When they acquitted him, we are now one step in democracy, one step in fascism. If he is elected in 2020, it will be full-blown fascism. The election is our only legal way that I see, other than putting pressure on our people. to. We, we can't do the 25th Amendment, apparently, and that's the only thing I see. I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts, Tom? But thank you. I, I think that the time for impeachment is long gone, Steve. It ain't coming back. And as far as I can tell, number one, we need elected officials pushing back. And number two, we need to overwhelmingly win these elections and right across the board. We need to sweep all of these complicit Republicans out of office all across the country. Thank you, Steve. David in Los Angeles. Hey, David, what's up? You were asking the question, how can we stop this from the perspective of a French person living in the United States? I think that it's going to need to get very, very, very bad. You know, like Trump arresting journalists, maybe Trump shutting down CNN or something extremely drastic for people to wake up because he's already uh, you know, put children being, in cages, David. He's he had killed some of them. You're right, Tom, but nobody cares about Latino people. I think it's going to have to happen to you know. I'm sorry to say, but middle white class people, white you know, people. Gonna, yeah. Yes, because nobody cares about brown people, and that's something I've been observing. And Trump is the swamp, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. His friend Roger Stone is behind the super PACs and all that, that legal corruption. So corruption has been legal forever in the United States. That's something I, I think yeah. you know, I've been observing. Yeah. I think, you know, it's just going to need maybe for him to shut down SNL, comedians, journalists. And otherwise, I see him getting reelected. Well, we'll see. I mean, this was, this was the thing from, you know, they thought they were free, where he says, we all kept waiting for that one great shocking event. Instead, it became incremental, incremental, incremental. And if, if the last thing that had happened had happened right after the first thing that had happened, everybody would have been in the streets. But because everything was small and incremental, we didn't get there. And I am not holding my breath for the great shocking event. In fact, what we saw over the last two days is a great shocking event, and people are not in the streets. We have to spread the word. We have to share this with people. We have to wake up America. We are losing our democracy, David. And yep. we have to start using this very blunt language. And I, I salute Bill Maher and Rachel Maddow and apparently Don Lemon for saying it out loud. It needs to be said every single day. This is not normal. This is not small d democracy. This is not how genuine republics are run. This man is an aberration. And he is beyond an aberration. He is a threat to our nation. David, thank you for the call. Nick in Huntington, West Virginia. Hey, Nick, what's up? I've been watching this go on for three years. I think he's a total fascist. I was raised by my grandparents who was in World War II and the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. They were Republicans. But they like still had the, common, had the common sense to see when they were doing the country wrong. Even though they didn't support Roosevelt in their later years, they realized what he'd done. Right. He gave them Social Security. You know, this was poor people up here in West Virginia. I'm a poor person. And I just feel 
it's all out for the corporations and the rich right now. And those poor people, black, white, green, purple, need to stand together and do something. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, and you've got to do it fast. Thanks a lot for the call. Gail in Antelope, California. Hey, Gail, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? The people like Pompeo and Pence and those, they're no longer referring to themselves as evangelical Christians. They're now calling themselves either white evangelicals or evangelical because actually there's nothing Christ-like about them. That means to be a follower and believe in Jesus. And Agreed. They, they really don't. I, I tweeted so, okay. to that effect la uh, yeah. yesterday or the uh, yeah. day before. Yeah. Yeah, there's a real good article in Christianity Today. Anyway, the other thing, and I'm going to make this real simple. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, everybody has some concept of what heaven is supposed to be like, which is where you're supposed to go when you die or after the rapture, according to Scripture. This is real simple. I doubt very seriously if we can expect to see any locker rooms or hear any locker room talk in heaven. I don't expect that we're going to see any people up there or gentlemen that think it's okay to grab women by the you-know-what, nor are we going to expect to see people up there who think that that's okay. The other thing is, as far as Trump being this chosen one, mm. we could argue that Judas Iscariot was also the chosen one. That doesn't mean we should have all given him a ride to the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus. Yeah. And unless he had a violent change of heart, I don't think we can expect to see him there either. Yeah, and in fact, you know, it's, he was chosen, apparently, if, if, you know, if you believe Scripture. Gail, thank you for the call. Excellent points all, and very well done. So it's that big day, Valentine's Day, and you're parked outside the restaurant, and your date is coming in 10 minutes, and you look in the mirror, and uh-oh, wrinkles and under-eye bags. You rummage through your bag thinking, where's your secret weapon? And there it is, Plexiderm. You apply that clear serum under your eyes, and boom, two minutes later, you start seeing the under-eye bags and wrinkles literally disappearing in front of your eyes. You'll look years younger. Plexiderm is the clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the Valentine's Day gift you give yourself. Go to TriPlexiderm.com and enter Voices for 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. Again, enter Voices at TriPlexiderm.com to get 50% off plus an extra 10 bucks off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee, so to get my special discount, enter Voices at TriPlexiderm.com. Tom Harvin here with you, uh, Don in Montclair, California. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? I think it's uh, inaccurate when, as a believer in a sovereign God, to use the premise that people can somehow expedite the end of times. If God is who he says he is and who he claims to be, man doesn't have any power to bring on the end of times. Well, God it literally says in the Bible, no man knows the hour. Pence and Bolton and Pompeo. Pompeo has Esther open in his Bible right. and wants to bring on Solomon's death. And so by bringing the end of times, that's, that's not going to happen. Man doesn't do that. Man doesn't expedite God's Well, plan. you may, agree, you may believe that, Don, plan. and I may believe that. Do to, you believe that? Well, I, I'm, I'm still somewhat ambivalent I mean, about this anthropomorphic God. But the, the point no, no, is, you, I mean, there I, so is a large group of people who do believe that, Don. 
It's a movement in the United States. I mean, go back and back and read the late great planet Earth back from no, the I, 70s. I know, I know I mean, Hal Lindsey. I know yeah, it well. Yeah, Hal Lindsey and, and all these people around him. And it is all based on this, uh, I'm forgetting his name, but this preacher from the 1880s and 1890s who did this interpretation of the Bible. Prior to the 1880s, this end times-ism just literally did not exist in Christianity. This is a relatively recent thing. And by the way, it's the not just in Christianity, it's in and, Judaism and as well. Well, you got over. You, you, you travel around Israel, and you will see bumper stickers that say Mashiach now, and you'll see that in some places in New York too. The Schneerson cult within the Hasidic community. There are people who believe that they can bring about the end times. I was in Israel just a few weeks after Alan Goodman went up on the Temple Mount and tried to put up a tent and pulled out a machine gun and shot a bunch of Muslims because he believed that if the second temple was erected, and of course the Temple Mound, the right, you know, the Wailing Wall is the front side of it, and it's above that, and it's above the ruins of the temple. The belief among these folks, and he was a Messianic Jew, was that if you rebuild the temple, then the Messiah will come. You know, in his mind, for the first time in the minds of the Messianic Christians, it would be for the second time. So that's, that's what's going on. I don't want to argue theology here. Danielle in Naples, Florida. Hey, Danielle, what's up? I was raised fundamental Baptist in western Pennsylvania, and you are 110% correct. We would have sermons talking about the revelation, the tribulation, the end times. Uh, countries would be named Russia, China. Syria, Iran, I mean, this is very real mm-hmm. it's in our government. It's terrifying. It's really scary stuff. If you like horror films and like that kind of thing, definitely read the book of Revelation. Yeah. It's pretty scary. Well, they made so. Lindsay's book into a movie. Yeah. The, the late great planet Earth. These guys are stone cold, sober and deadly serious about it. And, you know, it's it's part of moving the embassy to Jerusalem was part of that, too. You know, you've got to put Israel back together the way it was back in the day. The Second Temple is a piece of it, like I said, with Alan Goodman and all that stuff. And that was back in the in the 80s, as I recall. It was a long time ago. My father is one of these guys. I mean, he would never support someone like Trump, just a rotten human. But mm-hmm. he believes God will use him and wield him and work through him. And I mean, it's really messed up. Well, that's the King Cyrus defense. If you ask these guys who is Trump, they'll say he's King Cyrus. King Cyrus was, I think he was Persian. I think he was an Iranian king. But in any case, he was not Jewish. He was a king who, who sheltered the Jews. He didn't convert to Judaism. He, didn't, he wasn't a good guy. But he, he helped the Jews survive during a period when they were wandering in the wilderness, as it were. The modern-day defense among these evangelicals is that Trump is King Cyrus. And you, I mean, Google it. You'll find thousands of articles asserting this in I read religious about publications. It. Yeah, it's all over the place. You'll hear it preached today. If you listen to enough Christian radio, you will hear it preached. Danielle, thank you. Thanks for the affirmation. Appreciate the call. And thanks for watching us on YouTube. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's Hi. Up? You read something by Christopher Wiley. Where, oh, one of his books? <laughs> I yeah. can't say the title. Yeah. I have had the same experience. I'm banned permanently from Facebook. I'm a security threat. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. I had opened up a new Facebook page and got half of my friends back, and it was beautiful. And all of a sudden, I, I put up a picture of my cat, and Facebook came on and said, I'm banned from Facebook forever. <laughs> That's weird. I, I mean, know, that happened, that happened to me, and well, they, they unbanned me after I wrote an op-ed saying that they should be regulated. 
<laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, they unbanned you. Well, they unbanned me briefly, but then they rebanned me. Yeah. So I'm out of that forever. But that's not why I called. Amazing. Yeah, I really miss being on your Facebook show. You know, the quotes and everything. Mm-hmm. But what I'm calling about is, no, I don't feel safer with Donald Trump and a bunch of white nationalist Christians who use the Bible for the rules of war. Right. I'm sorry, that doesn't make me feel safer. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I don't get why anybody would think that they are. I don't know. They're using uh, something that Catholics call sola scriptura, which we're against, which is that they interpret the scripture the way they choose. Mm. And when they use it for the rules of war, I really worry. And here we have not only Trump, who's an incompetent, malignant narcissist running the country, but we have Pompeo, Pence, and these other heretical Christians running it. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it... Uh, World War Three is what could possibly go wrong. I well, mean, that's know, what worries me. Carol, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. Wynn in Solon, Maine. Hey, Wynn, what's on your mind? My father's religion is killing my father's Republican Party because you got to look at the majority of Protestantism in the United States is based on Calvinism, whether it's the old plantation theology or the modern-day uh, prosperity theology. Now, when you don't have prosperity... That don't sell no more. Right. When the economy starts to tank and people can figure out, well, this is Trump. It's turning down because of Trump. Or if they really look at it, and the younger generation, they're smart enough to look this stuff up online. And they, they can see the trends where when Republicans are in power, you know, wages tend to drop. You know, the economy actually gets worse under Republicans, especially for the middle class and young people. looking. Oh, for you can track you can track that back to the 1890s. I mean, I believe it, yeah. you know, literally every 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 Republican administration has if you compare the growth, if you compare the growth of the stock market, if you compare the growth of wages, if you compare GDP, I mean, pretty much any measure, any metric you want to choose, compare Republican and Democratic administrations. And what you'll find is that Democratic administrations always do better than Republican administrations in all of so those categories. If they're out there trying to sell, we're the party of prosperity, you know, because we're good Christians, because you're good Christians, God's going to reward you with prosperity. And this is what they've been selling. So when times get rough, people are going, hold it. This doesn't work. So it's. So the neo-Calvinism in your mind is collapsing, basically. Uh, Yeah. And it's, it's taken the Republican Party down with it because this is what they've been pushing for so long. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're right, Rich. I, I really do. Michael in the Bronx, in Bronx, New York. It's not the Bronx anymore. Hey, Michael, what's up? The tweet from Donald Trump Jr. and then the statement from Doug Collins saying that Democrats love terrorists. Right. Here's why they they put not one foot but two feet in their mouth. First off, they cannot bring themselves to say that it's the Democrats that are following the laws domestically and internationally. Are Republicans doing the same thing? I don't think so. But then this is the same party, Republicans, who always want to play the Christian card and want to be about Christian morals and family values. If you go back to the Christian teaching, what did Jesus say? Love your enemies and pray for them and don't do any harm to them or retaliate or anything like that. So you're going to call yourselves Christian, but then you're going to chastise the Democrats for doing something that's Christian. Does yeah. that make sense? No, the, these guys are not Christian, and they're, they're, or at least they're not followers of Christ. I mean, this, this, is, this is nuts. Greg in Richmond, Kentucky. Hey, Greg, what's on your mind? 
Hey, thank you, Tom. I'm not Nostradamus, but I believe our republic is lost. We've got McConnell, his Senate minion, and I'd also like to say the rule of law no longer exists in the Republican Party. Republicans have proven themselves over and over again in their allegiance to corporate power and influence over our Constitution. And I think this is going to be a very big eye-waking event across this country of just how deep Republicans are into corporate needs and desires. So Mm -hmm. I don't know what will come of it, but I really believe polarization is so bad in this country, there is going to be no reconciliation with this. And probably the best thing would be to start splitting the country up into different countries and let the Republicans have their and the left have the Democrats their land, rewrite their own constitutions, and that way the Republicans would be free to deny their residents health care coverage, affordable drug prices, voting rights, civil rights, and they can free market themselves all day long with no checks or balances. Yeah. Problem is the the Civil War, you had the South that had turned from a democracy into an oligarchy. There was a small number of plantation owners who basically owned the politics of the South and the economy of the South. And it was very different than the North. And so the regional differences were so clear that the South felt that, you know, in fact, the majority of people in the South wanted to secede from the North and maintain their, quote, way of life, i.e. slavery. I don't see that in today's United States. I have neighbors who are Trump supporters. I have neighbors who are fervent uh, Trump opposers. We are all kind of coexisting in this country now. And calls for secession, I wrote an op-ed about this, you know, ultimately that may happen. And it would probably be led by a couple of East Coast states and the three West Coast states forming an alliance and breaking away. but. But I don't see it happening. I, I just I think that it's the equivalent of the conversations that the Catholics used to have a thousand years ago about how many angels could fit on the head of a pin. It's not going to happen, Greg. I don't see any practical way for us well, to break into two countries. I would certainly hope it doesn't happen. Let me state that. But what you just said, the few overlords of the South during the Civil War time period, now it's the whole country with corporate power and influence. Yeah, particularly, particularly with Fox News. Yeah, and, and and as long as Fox News is around, that virus is going to continue on and perpetuate. Yeah. Um, and and if Fox goes away, they'll just be replaced by OEN, which is the network. It's they're entirely on the internet, but I see them on airplane systems. They're funded by a bunch of right wing billionaires and or a few, I guess. They're the ones who went over to Ukraine with Rudy Giuliani to take the testimony of these corrupt prosecutors and say, oh yeah, Joe Biden's corrupt, and they're going to roll that out if, if Biden gets the nomination. Maybe they'll roll it out even before, but I think that they're hoping that Biden gets the nomination so that they can then roll it out. They're, I don't think that their oppo research, you know, constructing opposition nonsense is, is that well-formed or that deep on other candidates. Greg, thanks for the call. I, I, I think that was an important point. Tim, in Chenley Park, Illinois. Hey, Tim, what's up? I don't know really how to deal with your, with your characterization of evangelical Christians. It sounds so absolutely off base that I have to make a decision on what your motives are, because I'm a typical white, heavy metal atheist guy, and then I became a evangelical Christian, which then, of course, you characterize as a white man evangelical Christian, and I don't even recognize the people that you just vilify. I'll tell you, my personal opinion is that 
First of all, our churches are more segregated than any of our other institutions in this country. So yes, there are black evangelicals and black evangelical churches, but the white evangelical churches in the United States tend to be highly, highly segregated, high, you know, highly focused on white people, number one. And number two, starting with the Ronald Reagan presidency, the George W. Bush, his, the vice president's son, was the liaison to the evangelical community. And the Republican Party, for the first time, seriously started reaching out to the evangelical community and formed a political alliance with Jerry Falwell and, and with uh, a number of other you know, evangelical leaders, but particularly Falwell. He was the leader of that thing. And now it's his son, Jerry Jr., and Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son. And these guys are multimillionaires. They heavily support Donald Trump. They're aggressively supporting his agenda, particularly in, in my opinion, particularly the racist parts of his agenda. And I'm not having it. You know, I'm a Christian okay, myself, I, but there are good Christian churches I, in this country. The letter of Jude was written to churches 1,800, 1,900 years ago. And I would have to say that he is characterizing in his letter, as well as, of course, Peter as well, First and Second Peter, First and Second Third John, they, they, are, they are saying, this is what you should be doing as a Christian, and this is what you should not be doing as a Christian. And in the letter of Jude, they basically, they basically say, look, here are the Christians you should be noticing. Never says kick them out of the church, but he just definitely says you should notice these people. So I mean, there's always going to be, be um, kind of non-Christians in the Christian church. But I guess the way you're characterizing white yeah. evangelicals like you do white men is, is wrong. Tim, I think, I think that a, maybe we practice a different form of Christianity. I, I, I look to the Gospels, to the four books that contain Jesus' words. I'm sure you're familiar, you know, if you're, if you're deep into this, you know that 12 guys who were the followers of Jesus, they formed right. their own church, essentially, and their church was in opposition to Paul's church. And... Paul came along after many of them had died out, and, 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 but their followers had not died out. And Paul reinvented Christianity. Paul never knew Jesus, n never met Jesus. And he was just running around that killing bizarre, followers of Jesus. That's a bizarre theology. No, no, this is, this is history, theology. what I'm telling you. And, uh, well, it might be history, and, and Paul, which, which, by the way, I have in my pocket. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, there's, you know, I'm... Paul's I, Christianity, tell me there's no resurrection, there's no, there's no salvation in Christ, there's no blood atonement. I mean, Paul's not Paul's not uh, anti-theological or heretical. But Paul was Paul was basically not even close. Paul was saying things like, you know, women shouldn't speak in church. Paul was like laying down rules for his church. I'm just telling you, Tim. I hold to Matthew five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew twenty-five, and I think that that's okay. the sum and substance of Christianity. And Tim, and beyond that, you, you know, and I you agree hundred. You, you agree hundred percent with me. I agree with hundred percent of you. My Christianity comes from the words of Christ. First and foremost, okay, there's, there's, sola scriptura is, is the gospels to a Christian. Yeah, and maybe I'm outside the church by saying that Paul doesn't speak to me or for me. Yeah, I think of Paul and sometimes in some ways and, and some of the things he said the same way I think of some of these right-wing pastors these days. Tim, I, I got to move along. I'm You're sorry. Curious? I don't think we're going to, you know, change each other's minds. Carol in Lakewood, New Jersey. Hey, Carol, what's up? I well, love you, Tom. Thanks, Carol. Thanks for calling. Ab absolutely terrific. I'm calling in response to your caller 
who talked about Jews being for Israel. Yeah, well, let's and just back up a little bit. The context, for people who didn't hear the call, uh, the context was that Mr. Vindman, or Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who testified against Trump, who was being vilified by Trump using classic anti-Semitic language. You know, the, the, that he was a spy, that he was, you know, an outsider, he was born outside the country, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, he, you know, we got into this conversation about why is it that Netanyahu and so many Orthodox Jews are supportive of Trump. Is it common perspective on patriarchy or what is it? I don't know. And, and I just left the question hanging. So, Carol, you have an answer to that? I think I may. Okay. Orthodox Jews are for a, a, they do not want a two-state solution. Oh, in Israel. And yeah. In Israel. And Netanyahu is against a two-state solution. They want Israel to be strictly for Jews. Yeah. I have a cousin who is Orthodox and lives in Israel and believes in Netanyahu because they do not want to separate the state so the Palestinians have their own homeland. Yeah. And I believe that is why... And part of Lakewood is a very Hasidic community, and the Hasidic Jews in Lakewood are for Trump. That makes a that's lot of sense, Carol, that, and that's a, that's a much less esoteric answer than speculating about, about hierarchy or patriarchy or anything like that. That makes perfect sense. Carol, thank you very much for calling and sharing that. Don, watching Free Speech TV in Shoreline, Washington. Hey, Don, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I just saw the film uh, last night, the old film Seven Days in May with Burt Lancaster and Frederick March playing. Oh, wow. I saw that when I was a kid. I don't. It, it remind me what it was about. It seems like it was World War II. Burt Lancaster played a top military general, and three others were plotting to overthrow the government. And near the end of the film, Frederick March played the president, reminded uh, Bert the job of the president is to uphold and defend constitutional law. Whoa. I just wonder, what do you, I don't know what you think, uh, if we're headed towards spending a constitutional law and replacement with a martial law with uh, something that may happen, a, another attack on America, perceived attack. What do, what do you think about that? Oh, I think if 9-11 happened again, we would probably flip it to fascism within a matter of months. Yeah. Not sooner than that. It, it yeah. concerns me tremendously, and Bush really laid the groundwork for it. I mean, he altered the nature of our laws and the interpretation of our laws in such a consequential way that in some ways it's almost as big a change as the change that we had after the Civil War when we went mm -hmm. from a weak federal government to a strong federal government as a result yeah. of uh, changes that Lincoln made and then exactly. Andrew Johnson. I understand that the term Homeland Security is actually derived from the Russian acronym KGB, which in Russian speaks to that, like the security of mother communist Russia at that time. Actually, it, Rudolf Hess, mm -hmm. in the 1937, the big Nuremberg rally that Lenny Reifenstahl made the movie Triumph of the Will about, Rudolf Hess got up and gave a speech and said, Dankier Führen, you know, thanks to our Fuhrer, Heimat for alles die Deutschen die ganze Welt. And forgive my terrible German, but he said Heimat. Heimat is the German word for homeland. And so what he said in that speech was, thanks to our Fuhrer, Germany now has become the homeland for German people all over the world.
Oh, and, and then, you know, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, and then Hitler came up and gave his speech. And the Germans, the Nazis, at that point, right after that speech, started using the word Heimat, the word homeland, to describe a whole spectrum of stuff inside the German government. And that's why when George W. Bush came out with this Department of Homeland Security, I freaked out. You can you know, Google my name and the word homeland, and you'll find a whole series of articles that I wrote back in 2003, 2004, about the German Nazi origin of that word and how the word was designed. I mean, this was an intentional thing that Hess did, we now know. And, and it wasn't just Hess. I mean, it was at the su suggestion of Goebbels. And they had basically tested this. Goebbels talked about this later, about how they had seen how Jews had a homeland, a much-wanted Israel. This idea of homeland was intrinsic to Jewish identity, to the Zionist identity anyway, and that they had to do the same thing for the German people. They had to, you know, it was all the whole blood and soil thing. And if you're going to have a homeland, you have to have essentially racial purity. I think this was the beginning of the whole race-based thing coming out of the Republicans. Let's see here, Bob in Westminster, Colorado. Hey, Bob, what's on your mind? So you're an, are you an NLP practitioner, by the way? I am an NLP practitioner and trainer. I have been familiar with that since 1980, and I'm for fear of this country because I think we are up to our necks in water already. Mm -hmm. And the thing of it is, the Democrats, they all, I mean, I heard Pelosi this morning saying it was just a disappointment. And the Democrats need to take out the war words and start tagging this guy, because the only way to really beat him right now is to tag him with enough darts that he actually goes totally berserk and actually do, does really truly scare the right They people. need to be calling him a fascist. I mean, the Republicans had no problem calling the Republicans had no problem calling Obama a socialist and a communist even when he rolled out and Obamacare. They need to pull out the Republicans and expose them because they support his entire agenda. Yeah, they need to... I'll let they, you go, Tom. Yeah, Thanks. Okay. Thanks a lot, Bob. This is just beyond the pale. Michael in Princeton, Minnesota. Michael, what's up? Yeah, Tom, I was just watching the Senate here. They just passed the War Powers Act against Iran, 55 to 45. Now it goes to the House. Whoa, that's great. Yeah, yeah. That means that yeah. Donald Trump can't declare a war as a, as a strategy to suspend the election, which is right. what I've been worrying about. Right. And also, I think a lot of our uh, Republican senators and stuff are kind of laying low. I think they know that individually they can't take on Trump. But what I'm thinking is going to happen here is that they're going to congregate. And once they do, I think they're going to go against Trump. And also, there's a lot of voters out there that didn't vote for Bernie or couldn't vote for Bernie. So they voted for Trump. We're going to gain those back. I agree. I agree. And start looking at these Republican senators after their individual primaries are over. That's when and they're going to be able to grow a spine. Part of the reason I think this is because uh, there was a survey on as far as the direction of the country taking. And the direction of the country was unfavorable by, I forget the exact figures, it was somewhere around 8%, though, unfavorable. Hmm. And I've been busy calling congressmen again. You mean 8% uh, more unfavorable I, than favorable? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Keep it up, Michael. Keep it up. The phone number for Congress for the Congressional Switchboard, 202-225-3121 or 224-3121. They both get you there. You'll find both numbers floating all over the Internet. And let your senators know, especially if they're Republican senators, but Democratic senators too. Tell your Democratic senators to start using language like fascism and tell your Republican senators to start standing up. Stop being a spineless jellyfish.
And then you can also call your member of Congress, too, as well. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy doesn't just fall out of the sky. It requires you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. And tell your friends how to find progressive media. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 